0: Hi, this is James Tynan IV, and I love the Drake. You don't like the Drake? I hate
1: the Drake. I
2: love the Drake. How
1: could you not like the Drake? Who's the Drake?
2: Who's the Drake? The Drake
1: is good. Do
2: you like the Drake? I love the Drake.
1: the drake
3: i love the drake hello everyone welcome to robin everyone loves the drake comic podcast this podcast will take a chronological look at the third robin tim drake we will be looking at the classic 90s 2000 robin series and other notable comics with tim in that era while also simultaneously taking a look at tim in the modern era as red robin in the pages of dc comics plus other Robin and Batman happenings in the world. So sit back, relax, and find out why everyone loves the Drake.
2: Good for them! Love the Drake! Got to love the Drake! I'm impressed.
3: What can I say? I'm irresistible. Right, hello, everyone. Welcome to "Robin." Everyone loves the Drake podcast. I'm your host, Rob Myers, and we've got a special episode of the show. If you've, I've been really coy on Twitter of like, hey, you know, doing hashtag the fourth to put a picture of the Roman numeral four. So I think people figured out right away that, um, and it was dumb luck that I was going to, we were going to be able to get the James Tynan interview that you're going to hear in just a second. Kind of wrapping up not only his run but our radio drama. So I think it all kind of. Uh, fit in uh, really nice. Uh, so Ryan is off celebrating Ernest P. Worrell today, so um, we we needed a heavy hitter for the show, and uh, we had just done, if you haven't listened to it, go check Batman on Film. That's issue episode 117 of our discussion on uh, James's whole Detective Comics run, and it was Terrence and I's first chance to get to talk to Peter. So Peter Vera is joining us on the show his first time on Robin Everyone Loves the Drake. How are you doing today, sir?
1: I'm doing great, guys. It's uh, it's awesome to finally uh, make the cut and, and uh, make the Drake podcast. This, uh, this is a pretty intense feeling.
4: <laughs> cool. And of course, we've got Terrence with us. How are you doing today, sir? Pretty good. And just for those of you listening, this is out of order. So we've just recorded... Uh, about a 90 minute conversation with uh, James Tinney in the fourth and so now we're recording the intro after the fact because we don't want to do this all with him just sitting there tapping his fingers <laughs> like uh, guys I am the guest here uh, you know <laughs> but but uh, I think at some point in the very beginning, Rob shut his microphone off and yelled to his wife, "Honey, the uh, slush fund we've been saving for the lawyer we can now spend on a vacation." <laughs> <laughs> not only are you going to be sued, but I could imagine the the smile on your face was about eight miles wide oh. from like Toledo all the way to Cincinnati when he said, "Not only had he listened to the." Uh, Uh, radio drama but that he i think he used an expletive and said it was bleeping awesome yeah (laughs) so uh,
3: how how great did that make you feel rob that that was pretty cool to hear him say oh i thought i would listen to a little bit of it and an hour later because what I had done is I had sent him everything minus the uh, just the audio drama itself. I think it runs like an hour and you know fifteen twenty minutes or something like that. So I sent it to him just like that as is a whole thing. And I didn't hear anything for almost a month. And I was like, well, I'm sure he's busy or he's writing stuff like hmm, DC. We've got to sue this guy in Mount Blanchard, Ohio. <laughs> you know. So that that was yeah. pretty cool to hear uh, him say that you know he liked it and uh, that it had turned out well. So I'm almost wanting to put that, what he said about that in this, but I might take that excerpt when we do maybe a discussion episode of the radio drama and that he may, you know, start to show off that way. So I'll have to see him
4: or editing, or you could make it, you could make it your ringtone. <laughs> yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah. That, that might
4: be with a new ringtone. <laughs> and then just keep having your wife, call me again, call me, call me, call me. Yeah. Yeah. I just got to no, check. He, I guess, I just gotta say for everybody listening, you're in for a treat. Uh, he, he is, Awesome. He was a gentleman. He was a great guy. He was, he's a true, true DC fan. Uh, he knows way more than any of us do. It was almost (laughs) like, uh oh, like we're the one asking him the questions, but we're like, I'm like, uh oh, because he knows way more than any of us. And, uh, it was just an awesome experience. So, Rob, thank you so much for setting this up. And I think everybody, you're, you're in for a treat.
3: Yeah, definitely. Well, the three of us aren't going to chatter any longer. Let's just get into the thing that we just finished. Uh, this is our discussion with James the IV talking about everything DC, magical, and, of course, Tim Drake. So here we go. Five, four, three, two, Drake. Drake. Our guest today studied under Scott Snyder at Sarah Lawrence College and did an internship at DC Imprint Vertigo before coming over to DC proper. He has worked with Marvel Comics, IDW, Thrillbent, Boom Studios, of which his creator-owned book, The Woods, won a 2016 Glad Media Award for Outstanding Comic Book. He has also won the 2017 Prism Award for Best Single Issue for Mainstream Publisher. The Backstage is a really cool issue if you have not check it out and has wrote some of the best Batman and Robin stories to date. Batman and Eternal, Batman and Robin Eternal, backups for Scott Snyder's Batman. Batman and the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, how cool is that? A creepy one, The Batman Who Laughs, and many, many more. He has concluded his amazing Detective Comics run for Rebirth's Detective Comics, which this show turned a radio drama out of part of it. He has moved on to his newest endeavor, Justice League Dark. Oh, and of course... By the way, he loves the Drake, which is why he's here. Please give a warm welcome to James Tynan IV. How are you doing today, sir?
0: I'm doing great. Thanks so much. That's uh, that's quite the introduction.
3: (laughs) That's where I try to pull like, what would Kevin Smith say if if he were here? So uh, uh, we just kind of want to chat with you for a little bit. Obviously, your uh, love for uh, Tim Drake, but getting a start of who james is how did you get your start in comics and where did the ball start rolling for you
0: um i mean uh, there are sort of there are a couple answers to the question um like i've i've been reading comics my entire life like one of my first memories actually is my dad taking me into a comic shop in new york city i don't remember which shop but it was like when i was like three years old and i remember seeing a big big cardboard cutout of spider-man and it scared the crap out of me. And I would, I had like nightmares for the next, like, you know, <laughs> the next few months about Spider Man. But that, that's really, you know, that's also when I got my hands on the first few comics that I sure, sure as hell couldn't read, but I, I definitely. Or maybe I forget. I don't know when. When <laughs> uh, I probably couldn't read at that point. But it's like you know that I would just start flipping through, and I started falling in love with the characters. But it was—it's really not, and it was really in uh, high school, particularly. Like I got super into DC Comics in the whole event cycle that that started with Identity Crisis, and then to in, like Countdown to Infinite Crisis, Infinite Crisis. Like I fell deep in the DC hole in that era. It also like coincided with me getting a car. So it's like, I could finally drive to the comic shop rather than only visiting like once every few months, you know, but high school was also when I found stories like Sandman and planetary that really, cause I wanted to be a writer, but, it, uh, and I loved comics, but that was the moment that those two, those two concurrent things in my head like clashed together and I said I wanted to write comics. so I went to you know Sarah Lawrence College which has a really strong writing program uh, and while they, and Sarah Lawrence works a little differently than other colleges you actually you go and do interviews with your teachers uh, to decide whether or not you want to take the class because it's a bunch of really small classes and all of that and I was interviewing the different people doing the creative writing programs and one of the teachers was this young, a uh, young guy in his 30s had just written, some, like, a book of short stories. But he had also had a short story in a collection that had just come out that summer called Who Can Save Us Now? Which was a bunch of, uh, like, literary short fiction, but on a kind of superhero theme. So he seemed like a cool guy, and I met him, and that was Scott Snyder. Uh, it was before he had written a single comic book. And over the course of while I was in the class with him, he actually had his first... You know, he they that was when Vertigo asked him to pitch something for the first time. uh, And that was American Vampire. And so he sends me like we had developed a good like back and forth. And he sends me the the rough pitch for American Vampire. And instead of being like, oh, man, this is so cool. I sent him a, a 10 page critique of it. Like breaking (laughs) down what I thought worked and what didn't work. Almost like, you know, now, like 10 years later, uh, he still sends me every single thing he works on. Uh Uh, And that's what that was the start of our uh, working relationship. I became a writing assistant to him, like helping him out, you know, doing research and stuff like and helping on a prose project he was working on. Some parts of which ended up becoming parts of The Wake and parts of uh, Witches actually the like but that was that was really the kind of like you know those were the that was the start of that working relationship but i was still trying to figure out how do i get into comics itself because that that was sort of the goal and i mean like hanging out with scott was great and all but i thought that I wasn't going to have a chance to write comics for a really long time. I knew that, you know, some people go into editorial first. And and I was really enjoying working with Scott and sort of talking story like that. So I thought what I wanted was to go into editorial. So I, uh, I I got an internship at Vertigo at DC. And that was a huge experience for me. Like Vertigo was an incredibly... Like important, you know, is a very important part of like my my upbringing and all of that, and uh, that's sort of where it got started. But the company was sort of like it was around 2010, and there was, the company was going through changes. This is when like Jeff Johns became the president, like one of the Jeff Johns, Jim Lee, Dan DeDio, like Trinity ascended mm. in that play, mm. like like while I was there, and there were some shakeups at Vertigo. So it was one of those things I was hoping I would get a job right out of uh, right out of that. And I would hopefully, you know, become an assistant editor or something like that in these B- in Vertigo or in BCU. But that didn't end up happening. And I went off to go work in advertising for like a year and a half while still talking to Scott every single day and starting to develop my own pitches of things that I wanted to send out into the world. Mm. And in that time, Scott Snyder goes from being like you know the wily writer of american vampire to the writer of detective comics and then they ask him to go take over batman like big <laughs> proper batman you know and then batman goes up uh, like big shocker bat batman number one with him in capullo was a big success it was such a success that they decided they wanted to do backup stories for it and because i'd been literally like almost every single day since i was his student uh we had been talking story his schedule was too jam packed. He was working on American Vampire, one of the American Vampire miniseries, Swamp Thing, and Batman all at the same time. So he couldn't do eight extra pages a month. So he gave me a call and said, James, like, I can't do this alone. Would you co write these with me? And that is how, that is the long story of how my first published comic was <laughs> Batman number eight of the new 52. Oh, well, that's great. Were great. Well, thank you so much. I, like, I, uh, worked through re- it like that. That was sort of like grad school for me, <laughs> I'm trying to figure out how to, you know, how to go from like, you know, little little things that I had only ever written for myself to all of a sudden like, okay, this is going to have a huge audience, and people are going to know. Like, if I screw this up, like people are reading Scott Snyder's Batman, and if all of a sudden there are some really crappy backup stories they're going to know that's my fault and I'm never going to work in this industry. So I, you know, that, that's really, uh, that's when I started kicking my ass and, uh, you know, and Scott was a huge help. Of course, like we worked very, very closely on those, uh, on those backup stories and we continue to work very closely to this day. I was on the phone with him for like an hour around noon today. So, yeah,
1: that's great. So James, what was it about, what's it about Tim Drake? Uh, your first exposure to the character, what, what drew, what drew you to Drake as opposed to like a, a, a Dick Grayson or even Jason Todd as Robin? Like what was it about this particular Robin that really caught your eye and really inspired you to write just a great story about him?
0: It's, it's interesting because I know it's like, he's a character that obviously was, you know, had, had huge presence in the nineties and showed up in all these different stories. But my, uh, my first real dose of him was actually in the Young Justice Sins of Youth crossover, which I picked up as a trade, you know, at my local Borders books, probably some point in like middle school, like late middle school, probably like.
1: So what year are we grade? talking?
0: When would that have been? I'm looking at it. Like, <laughs> that would have been around like right or ar- right around 2000, 2001.
3: Yeah, okay. Uh, Sins of the would Youth have came out May two thousand, is what it says on the app.
0: So yeah, that that makes sense. Like that would be so it would have been like not when it was hot off the presses, but like later that same year hmm. that I got my hands on that trade. And it was really the the issue in there that really stood out to me was the Chuck Dixon part of the crossover, which was an issue of Robin itself, which was uh, in which we saw like. Like, Robin was all of a sudden aged up to Batman, and Batman was aged down to be, like, you know, a very grumpy teenager in a way that, like, honestly, like, I know it's not a direct, like, influence on Damien, but it's like, you can see elements of Damien in that grumpy little Bruce, even now. I I just reread that the other day, uh, and it's still, like, there's some really good stuff. It's a crazy crossover. I don't, like, the fact that it was some of my first, like, mainline continuity DC Universe stuff is, like, it's amazing that I, I hung on. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But uh, I was I was an X-Men kid, so it's, like, I was used to trying to take all of the weird threads of, like, continuity that you would get little hints of. And I, I liked mm-hmm. trying to put it all together, which, you know, I think you can still see uh, me, the me the act of me trying to put strange bits of continuity together in my run. But yeah, that that's re- that's really where it started. But it was like Tim was like at that moment he and Bruce were fighting, and it was interesting because I'd never read a read a story before, seen Batman in the context of like this young character who was like kind of disappointed in and appreh- apprehensive of his relationship with Batman, and uh, and it was just it was an interesting dynamic. I was a moody, moody like like young teenager and it's just like that really spoke to me and then it was just like but it wasn't but then with his friends he was this like much happier like much Mm -hmm. more together character um who was a leader and it was just like you know being kind of like moody and apprehensive around your parents but then really like coming into yourself around your friends that was something i immediately like you know, connected to. And I started hunting down all of the young justice comics I could find. Um, and it took me a long time to like read the whole run because at that point I didn't, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, I can't fully comprehend it now, but it's like, you don't fully understand like how, what order in which comics come in. You're just like, (laughs) all right.
1: You're just picking up back issues.
0: Exactly. And it's just like, if it has young justice on the cover, I will have it and I will read it and I will try to put them in order and try to make sense of it but it's just like over here we've got slowbo and empress and over here like we've got stories about them meeting secret for the first time and it's just like i don't know how do you get from point a to point b like or more how do you get from point like e to point (laughs) like like g but it's like you know but that's sometimes that's the fun of comics too. It is sort of, what is the world you start building in your head around that? And so from that, I started hunting down the Dixon Robin series and Batman stories in general. And started, rather than just reading, like, or I started reading what was happening in the moment. And that was the uh, Rucka Brubaker era of uh, Batman and Detective Comics, like, right post uh, No Man's Land. So I was collecting okay. 50 pieces of No Man's Land, but right after that. Uh, was when I was really like actively digging in and then that gave way into the hush era and all of that. Like the so it was all of all of those pieces. Like it was that era of Bat family. Mm-hmm. Uh in particular. The post No Man's like Land, Cassandra
1: nineties, early two thousands.
0: Exactly. Like Oracle as a real connecting force, uh the birds of prey active in the clock tower. Uh, Batman kind of being, you know, a jerk to everyone <laughs> and the, <laughs> no. family, the, the family kind of coming together in spite of that. But that it was that family of characters and that real era that, you know, that gave me my love of Gotham.
1: So how did that era of Bat family eventually transcend into your running detective like how how did you get were you and you were obviously inspired by this large group ensemble in gotham and then for you to create a just a great great long run using an unusual team that we really wouldn't expect in a modern bat family so how, how did how did you really choose your your players in your game
0: well, part of it was there were elements that I was trying to build towards for a long time. I loved the character of Stephanie Brown, particularly her relationship to Cassandra Cain and Tim, so we had reintroduced her in the first Batman Eternal, and then she had shown up like, you know, maybe in one or two other small places after Batman Eternal, but it wasn't until Batman and Robin Eternal that we picked her back up. And then it was just like, okay, I I want like I want to tell the story that I've been trying to set up in each of these things and then in batman and robin eternal we finally did the thing like in the first version of the first batman eternal i also wanted to introduce cassandra kane and it was Mm -hmm. sort of a like like it was still so early on in the new 52 and it was just like you can't part of what they had tried to do in the new 52 is make the whole line accessible to new readers and so the idea of like all of a sudden like hey, we're going from a small bat family to there are 20 members of the bat family. Like, they didn't want to go to zero to, <laughs> like, 20 overnight. And I understood that, but I definitely kept pushing. So, I mean, it started with I wanted to write Sam. I always wanted to write Sam. Like, I got every every opportunity I could write Sam, I, I did. I, you know, like, going the first time I got a write. Got to write him was the Batman uh, number zero, okay. like that, yeah. that that came out that I in the backup story I did a backup story that basically had each of the Robins and uh, Barbara Gordon the first time that it was they, it's where they all were with the first night the bat signal went up in mm-hmm. Gotham and mm-hmm. it was just like that was my first attempt to write the characters as I saw them and like, that was the and, uh, right.
3: um, where he bust these, uh not principal, but the dean for uh, the grades and everything like that. Am I remembering yes. that story correctly? All right, cool.
0: Yes, exactly. And it was sort of, I wanted to sort of show, like, just a little touch of, like, yes, they ha- they all have the elements of their character, who they are before before that moment. But, uh, I mean, I, I really wanted to write Tim. I really wanted to, to write Cass and Steph. That woman was someone who actually came into... Uh, The process a little later, but even though and honestly, that really opened the book up to me, Uh, really, because uh, she was she was a character who, like in the early drafts of what I was pitching, the character I had wanted to use in the in her in the role that she would ultimately assume was going to be was going to be Jason Todd but Jason Todd was going to be running around in his own book and all of that. And one of the real goals of the series was I did not want this to be the second most important book for any of the characters in the book. I did not want something where it's just like, there is no tension because you know, like if Dick Grayson had been in the book, he would have been in Titans, Nightwing, Titans, Nightwing and detective comics. And you know that like, the most important thing that's going to happen to Dick Grayson isn't going to happen in detective comics. It is going Mm -hmm. to happen solo title or the title that the team that he runs. Like, so it was, there were lots of things like that. That's why a lot of the core bat family characters weren't a part of the team. But Batwoman is also a character who I really, really love. And I need, and being able to tap into, I needed an ideological opposite to Tim, like in relationship to Bruce. And that that's really where she came into her own and everything I wanted to do with Colony and the kind of militarized concept of Batman, which made perfect sense because she is also she is a militarized concept of right. Batman. And like those all of those elements sort of came together and coalesced into the sort of heart of the team. And then the, the character on top of that was Clayfix, which started out as everyone at D.C. kind of pointed out hey, James, you have a team that is full of all of these street-level ninja characters who, like, they all have the same power set, and they, like, they also look, uh, like, if you do a lineup of them, they're all going to look fairly similar on a cover. Uh, You need someone on a team who, like, throws, who, like, shakes up the, the silhouette of the team. So if you see just the silhouette of them, you understand this is the superhero team that's coming. And the character who... Like made the most sense to me in that that mold was Clayface. The other character I considered was Manbat. When that character, I'm finally, <laughs> I'm finally getting around to do the stuff that I came up with like a few years <laughs> ago with Manbat over on Justice League Dark. But
1: I love the Clayface yeah, stuff. Was, I, it's, it's great.
0: Thank you, thank you so much. Um, <laughs> honestly, he was a huge surprise to me. Like he. I thought he was going to be a bit more of the comic relief. I didn't see him as the heart of the book, and then he became the heart of the book. And The annual was
1: like, I... Thank you.
0: Thank yeah, you. No. No, was,
1: I... I mean, it was breathtaking reading it and then seeing the artwork that involved with it. I mean, there were parts that looked like a film strip. I mean, the, you, you guys put in an A-plus effort, and it was just it was beautiful to read it and even review it for Batman on Film. It was just a tremendous experience for my, on my end. So it was great.
0: Well, thank you. Like, honestly, like Clayface like Eddie Barrow's what he did with Clayface I think he has drawn the definitive version of Clayface. Oh,
3: hands like, down. That,
0: that, oh, yeah. his version of that character. The only thing that stands close is the animated series version. He he took elements from that obviously, but he mm-hmm. made it made the character very much his own and he gave him this powerful sadness going all, all the way yes. back to that that first appearance and it was like once once I saw how that drawn it was just like I understood the character. Like and it's one of those things that the it, I needed to see that art to like even though I had written the scene, it was seeing how hard that hit me, and then it's just like okay, this is this is this has more like cre- there's more creative energy crackling around this than I was expecting, and I need to take it and harness it. Yeah.
4: So uh, I had a question about just kind of your your writing style, and I I just absolutely loved. The detective run i just i can't wait for the huge omnibus and the, the absolute version and and all that and what what blew me away in it was just how each character was so different like it, they were so true to to who they were but yet each one had their own voice and their own personality uh and you know sometimes some some shows or or some things that I watched it's, they sound great but everyone sounds the same or it's all it's the same character five times and and this had each character was so different and and I was wondering if you could maybe talk about how you do that and and whether was, was there one character you felt changed the most from it because for me I thought Stephanie Brown had the the biggest difference from who she was and say, the 90s and the 2000s to to this run. She was much more independent. She was much more uh, willing to take a stand against Batman. I really liked it. I, I don't know if that was a natural thing or, or, or it just kind of happened or you really wanted to do that in, in the pre- New 52, she was always trying to like catch up with Robin and, and be along with it. And even even her death at the end of her death, she was like, what was I really Robin? Was I really a part of it? And and here she doesn't she just doesn't care. And I just I just loved it. So I was just wondering if maybe you could talk a little bit about how you gave each each character their own voice.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, it, it's a little different for each of the characters. Obviously, with Tim, it was me trying to kind of tap into like It's something that I, I, I remember. I started thinking about it this way when I first started writing Batman, where it's just like you kind of have to imagine a kind of like plot chart where it's just like every like iteration of Batman in comics, every issue of every comic, every writer who's ever tackled him, every actor who's ever played him, every animator that's ever drawn him, somewhere at the heart of all of those different incarnations, is the like hypothetical real voice of the character. Like that's the center that's that's the center of the plot chart. Like that everyone is trying like is throwing throwing darts trying to hit that center. Uh, but everyone's center is a little different based on like what are the points on that plot chart that you as an individual like matter most to you as a character. So for Batman, like Batman the animated series is you huge part of the voice of the character to me. Like, that That was, like, Kevin Conroy's the voice that I'm always trying to, like, aim for in my head. And then, obviously,
2: Scott's,
0: Scott's Bruce Wayne is another, like, I've worked so closely with that version of the character that that's really, really close to what I'm trying to do, as well as the kind of Rucka Baker era. So it's like, for Batman as a character, that's sort of, like, those are the, that's the triangulation that I'm trying to hit. Uh, when I write Batman as a character, with Tim Drake, it's definitely it's a cross between Chuck the Chuck Dixon voice on of Tim, the uh, Jeff Johns Teen Titans run uh, version of Tim, which is sort of in my head. That's the like the Young Justice version, even though that's where I came in. Like I feel like that character really came of age in the Jeff Johns Teen Titans run. So that's that's where uh, that's a big piece of. The voice for me, so it's it's like I'm kind of trying to aim sort of in between those uh, those two places. With each of the characters, I kind of have a have a piece of that, but then there's also sort of the part of myself that I'm trying to put uh, put into them, and sort of what are their core ideologies. Like Clayface is is much more of a part of my own, like Clayface is more like my own insecurities, like and in writing. Mm-hmm and writing those and so is cast in a lot of ways Cass is the more restrained Cass and clayface kind of come from a similar place of depth uh, about who they are and what uh what their place is in in the world and uh and it's kind of tapping into tapping into that with stephanie like you're you're absolutely right i wanted to do something a little different with stephanie the thing that I had always taken from her stories in the past is that even though, like, yes, she kept trying to, like, you know, she was trying to join the Bat family over and over again. But the the element of that that I was always really drawn to is that it didn't matter if Batman said no. She was just going to do it anyway. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, that is always what really compelled me about the characters. Like, everyone... Like everyone else in the Bat family kind of tries to ask for uh, permission uh, to be a part of it. There, there's also, I think, a strain of, honestly, the Gail Simone era Huntress in how I write. Spoiler. Like, I can see that. There, there's a kind of just like, I am going my own way here and I'm trying to figure out what's the right answer. And I'm not sure that Batman is the right answer to how do, you, how do you solve the problems of Gotham? You know, Batman, you know, that was something that I wanted all of the characters to kind of grapple with. And you have, like, and there's the sort of Tim spectrum that I kind of created in the book, uh, even though there's never a scene where I was able to, I wanted to do a scene with all three of them together. But, like, there is, like, with Ulysses Armstrong, there is this kind of, like, totally amoral, like, militaristic version of Tim's worldview And then Mm -hmm. anarchy is the, is the exact polar opposite of like on the Tim spectrum of Ulysses, which is the more, it's the anarchic worldview. It is the idea that it's just like the systems, systems are what create the problem. And Ulysses is people are who are creates the problem. And Tim is the kind of tug of war between those two positions and trying to find uh, a kind of balance between them. And it was, it was interesting to me to kind of have step flirt with the extreme uh, because that is like i think that's a natural thing that young people do are sort of like okay i need to take look at this ideology and like take it to its extreme to see whether or not it fits me and if even though i think a lot of times it doesn't it like it teaches you more about yourself so i knew i needed to take her on that journey like that's that is one thread that there are a couple of stories I didn't get to in my run that that would have continued on that thread, but it, it just like they didn't make sense in the long run. I don't know. I I, I appreciate you saying that. It's a, she's a character I really I really have a lot of feelings about.
1: It's, it's my oh, yeah. favorite version of her. Like, yeah, you're, I consider it the definitive version. Just seeing her so sort of well, strong-willed you. and just like she doesn't take anything from anyone. She just did what she wanted, and then to see it all pay off at the end, where you know she looks up and she's like, "I was a Robin." It's just, it was great. It, it really was. I can't compliment you enough. <laughs> thank you. I really
0: appreciate it.
4: Yeah, all the all the characters are so great, and the the interactions between Cass and Clayface, and, and when you. I guess spoilers here, quote unquote, think Clayface is dead or oh, knows yeah. that it just it ripped your heart out seeing her yeah. reaction to what happened to Clayface. It was it was just amazing writing and artwork to, to to go hand in hand with it. It was just fabulous.
0: Thank you. Thank you. No, I like I was. And I mean, the artwork is like I really lucked out. I worked with some of the best artists in the industry on these, like particularly Eddie and uh Alvaro, who I'm dragging over to do Justice League Dark uh, with me after his incredible work on this series.
1: What's it like working with a large group of artists that seems to rotate on one book?
0: It's one of those things where, like, I. There is a strength that comes with working with an artist for a long period of time. It's why I was really glad I was able to get Alvaro to do the entire intelligence arc. That arc, like, I think really uh, needed a kind of you know, unity, and then you kind of, you develop a shorthand with an artist, you can really build something. But it's, when you're doing something with, like, a large cast of characters, it's, like, you can kind of, you kind of see, like, okay, here's who that artist draws. Like, it really gets to the heart of. And you can kind of cater to that. There are definitely artists who are much better at the, like, you know, emotional scenes, and they're their action is is not that like is not their strongest suit. And then there are the artists who the action is their absolute strongest suit, but like it would be wasted to use them on five pages of people talking to each other. Like, and it's sort of, you, you have to kind of be flexible, like understanding, like, okay, like how do I keep the tone of the story, even though we're going to kind of jump around. And I mean, like part of it is it's the necessary evil of the double ship schedule. You know, when when the book's coming out that quickly, you need you need lots of artists in the wings, and you just have to constantly be knocking these issues out. Um, did did but, you ever feel
1: the pressure of the of the of the schedule? Did that ever come into play? Where I mean, you're shipping a huge book out twice a month. I mean, I'm sure that takes its toll on you.
0: Right when I was working on all of the metal tie-ins, like basically uh, Fall of the Batman, the that whole arc that mm-hmm. was that was rough because I was. Having to, like, shift gear from, like, reading all of the Dark Knight tie-ins with all of the evil Batman from the Dark Multiverse, and then all of a sudden having to, like, completely switch the gear in my brain to, like, okay, now I need to write, like, (laughs) the saddest playface scene that's in my heart. Um, oh,
1: that's an emotional. That's a jump there, man. Wow. Oh yeah. To go from no, that I mean, to man who uh, Batman who Laughed. Wow, dude. I don't know yeah, how you did no, that. that.
0: That was that was a wild uh, few months, and wow. you know that <laughs> it's one of those things where there's always it's you know, and it's never you're never really sure. Like that's the weird thing about comics. Like there are issues like. You know, and I'm not going to point to specific ones, but there are issues that I've like labored over for weeks, like just trying to polish every scene to get it right. And then it comes out and I'm just like, oh, that's a pretty OK issue. And then there are the issues that it's just like, all right, yeah, like I've been working on all these crazy things and I need to get this the, the out of the door tomorrow. <laughs> And I need to basically sit down, chain myself to my desk and knock out this whole script. I'm not prepared to do that, but I have mm-hmm. to. And then some of those issues are my favorite issues I've ever written. Like then there are other ones where it's just like, it works how, you know, you imagine it where you work really hard on one and it ends up really good, or you don't work hard enough on one and it doesn't end up as good as you want. Writing is a weird animal. And it's sort of, it's more about when do you tap into like the heart of the thing Like thankfully, these characters are so close to me that it's uh, like I was able to find that heart easy, easier than it sometimes is on other books.
3: You know, when you were a big thing that kind of hit us, we were talking about all the this was a, a whole arc that kind of seemed like there were the moments that pulled your heartstrings. And I know on a previous episode, Terrence was, thought he was going to to talk me off a ledge of seeing Tim Drake die and flipping the page of going, Oh, holy crap. He's still alive. And like, now what? And all those things, yeah. that's, and that's something that we've all talked about that it's, when, when you're reading something that you can just tell that the writer is just totally invested in and gets, it for on our end it just makes for such a humanity in each one of these characters that they feel like they're living and breathing things. And that's kind of my weird segue to get into living and breathing things in a lonely place of uh, living. And this is kind of ties into uh, Batman Eternal a little bit. We kind of in the new 52 kind of see as well. Some of us fans were calling like tim fake at, at sometimes of you know it doesn't really kind of sound like tim drake but in batman eternal we were forever going i think james is writing the tim drake and jason beats in here so i was kind of wondering on that and then knowing that tim's parents were kind of flipped that both of his parents were alive they're witness protection so in like your mind are, are tim's parents still alive or in Rebirth, is that yet to be discovered? So just kind of what you kind of talk. I kind of like threw three questions at you there, but uh, yeah, just, yeah. Uh, kind of how all that plays out.
0: I mean, it's hard. Like one of those things with like when you're dealing with a kind of malleable continuity, it is it's sort of like the absolutes get a little wobbly, especially like, you know, we're back in a kind of moment right now in the post rebirth era of the new 52 continuity, <laughs> we are now in a moment where there are things, some elements of continuity have reasserted their place. Like Jason, Jason's origin involved him stealing the wheel off the, like the wheels off the Batmobile. Mm-hmm. Tim Drake's origin has reasserted itself. Like the things that are kind of the core, like we wanted to reassert the core. The interesting thing about Tim is that Tim's relationship to his parents, I don't think are as crucial to his core as they are for the other members of the right. Um because his relationship with Bruce and Dick actually like, you know, that kind of trump the relationship with his parents. Like when he started being Robin, his parents were alive and well, and then his mom died very short after, but then that never uh became that didn't become like part of like that didn't really become part of the like major continuity. And like I think there's there was a way to kind of rectify the two parts. And I had an idea of how I was going to do it. I actually even set up the thread of where I was like, what I was going to pull to do it. And you can see in the intelligence arc, I make a reference to the obey man, uh, which is the mm-hmm. character involved in, in the original, like in nineties continuity, that was the character who's responsible for the death of Tim's mother yeah. and was one of the first villains that Tim had to face. Uh, like, so, I I was planting some seeds that I might have pulled there and another writer still might to kind of rectify the two halves. But it's one of those things where I think to reassert Tim's core, his parents like there's a version where you keep his parents like alive and then with protection or you reassert the old 90s continuity. And I think the character stays I think his core stays where it is. Uh, does that, I hope that makes
3: sense. Yeah, I think that was one of the biggest things for I. We were understanding what the new Fifty Two was about, but the the core, like you said, of who Tim Drake is is discovering who Batman is, and it's not like it wasn't like ah, Batman tricked you. I I only led you down this you know the path in the new what the new Fifty Two was doing, but that. Tim understood who who Batman is and the need for a Batman and the need for a Robin. So seeing that in a lonely place of living and then finding out where Tim goes to in the lonely place, uh, or excuse me, lonely place of dying and then going into living and then tying in the Jeff Johns, uh, Tim Drake Batman was a really weird, twisted mirror of here's all the ideologies of Tim and then you took that and flipped it upside down and going almost showing the mirror of like. How important is Batman to you, Tim Drake? How important is Red Robin to you? So I thought that was just yeah. brilliantly done.
0: Well, thank you. I really appreciate that. Like, at that moment in the story, before I had the meeting uh, with Jeff Johns and Dan Jurgens, where we talked about the Oz effect and all of that, when, before that meeting, I was already trying to figure out, I need to build towards this, the broken version of Tim's optimism. And it was actually Jeff Johns who suggested in the meeting that that version already existed, <laughs> and he wrote him. Uh, and that was the Titans tomorrow, Tim, and it was That's actually tremendous. he was absolutely right. That was the character I was trying to build a kind of surrogate for a version of the character that already existed, and it was just like, and once I like once Jeff basically got gave me the permission to tap in into that run that was great but the, the thing that i immediately knew is the only reason to give that the only thing that gives that power is reasserting the classic continuity because it's not like it's there's the fact that he that he like the, the whole original lonely place like every the blueprint for tim as a character is in the original lonely place of dying like the entire blueprint for the character and it all comes from not just the fact that he discovers the identity of of, like he discovered the identity of batman and robin like a while before he actually does anything with that information he just sort of did it, kind of passively in the back of his mind but it was the moment that he realized that batman was hurting and that he was the only one who knew how to help him and it was the fact that he needed a robin and that is when like and that's when he decided to act and set set everything in motion and he wasn't he didn't want that role for himself. But because he saw the answer and when no one else did, the like he saw the correct answer to the problem that no one else could see. And then when no one else would step up to fill that role, he need there was a part of him that needed to do that. Like and didn't think about like did, there was no not a kind of selfish thought in a moment. It's just, OK, if no one else is going to do what I need to do it. And that is also very much core to Tim's character. And it's also what creates the kind of the back and forth that I wanted, like going back in the first issue of my run, where I introduced the fact that he's considering going to Ivy university and all of that stuff, like all of those threads come from that piece. So even if I wasn't going to get permission to use the, the scenes from that bit of continuity, like that's, that is the beginning of Tim as a character And thankfully, like, because this is tied to the core Rebirth, you know, meta story that's, you know, now culminating in Doomsday Clock, it was just like, I was given a little more freedom to just be like, hey, I need the old origin back. And then, and they gave me permission to do that. And once they gave me the permission to do that, I was just like, I don't, it's not just, I'm I'm not just gonna, like, lightly reference it. I want to use the actual words from the, the words and, like, rough shapes of the images from the classic run because it's just like it's not just it's not that a version of this story happened in my mind that story happened
1: james if you could would you give us a solo tim drake book not solo but would you give tim his own title or would you be more interested in doing another volume of batman ninja turtles
0: oh boy (laughs) that's that's the big either or why i feel yeah, like you both. left it open
1: after your detective run. i mean I, I love the ninja turtles books too um yeah so i mean that's when i when i first heard about the volume one i was like i can't believe they're doing this this is great and then to get a volume two out of it was even better so i was just are there more stories to tell even if, even if you wanted to do both i mean if you don't want to do both it's fine but i was just curious yeah
0: i I mean, me and Freddie Williams have the idea of what we would do for a third one. Like, he's off working on, like, Injustice versus Masters of the Universe right now with Tim Seeley, and he's doing an incredible job over there on that. Like, I think when he's done, like, that conversation might pick up again. Mm -hmm. I definitely got into a huge schedule crunch when I was working on Batman Turtles 2, which is why I needed to bring in my friend Ryan Farrier to help me with some of the dialogue, and I would want to try to... Make sure that on a schedule level, I was able to kind of really fully take the wheel to do a third one again. I love writing the turtles. I love writing those characters, and we have a completely freaking insane third third story concept that goes all the way back to like the first few pages of the first oh
2: great um, mm.
0: the first crossover.
1: What's it like writing um, a story like but, that for the publishers? You got two different publishers. What's is who are you trying to please at that point? Is it is it difficult to juggle both of them?
0: I think once they saw that I was like I was coming at the turtles with respect and knowledge of the franchise, and I was coming at Batman with respect and knowledge of the franchise. Like obviously they know what they, DC knows what that I know Batman, so they weren't worried about it. But at first, like I know IDW wanted the version of the uh turtles to be more in line with their with the continuity of uh their ongoing comic series which i totally understood but it was at a moment where like shredder was dead like donatello was brain was in metalhead's body like there Mm -hmm. was there there was it was a like weird moment. And then like our, our counter that kind of won that moment is like, it was also the moment that super heavy was going on in the, in the Batman books. And it's just like, if we have to strictly adhere to your continuity, then we're strictly adhering to ours. And it's going to be Jim Gordon, Batman and all that. So thankfully they were just like, no, 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 we want core, the core iconic version of the turtles and shredder. We want the core iconic version of Batman and his allies. And that that's what really kind of like let us go off to the races. And honestly, the only the only uh, like the, the biggest note I got from Nickelodeon and IDW in the whole course of writing that series is there's a scene in uh, I think the third or fourth issue where pizzas show up at Wayne Manor and Alfred answers the door and he's all grumpy about it, and Mikey slides down the rails on a skateboard and knocks into Alfred. Uh, and then like it's grabbing a slice of pizza and I, in my original version of the script, uh, Mikey cared more about the pizza and Nickelodeon said like, no, 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 Mikey loves pizza, but he would care that he just like knocked into somebody and hurt them. And, and they were right. That is a, that is a really good, like that was a valuable character note, but that is literally the the Mm. biggest, you have to change this note that I got in the writing of that series. So it was a really seamless project. Um, but to the, so to the other half of the question you were asking about the solo Tim Drake book, there is, there are definitely Tim Drake stories I would love to tell. Like, I, obviously, like, I seeded something with the Obey a Man, like, that would be something that I would love to tap into. But in a larger sense, I kind of took Tim through a full arc of like, what I wanted to kind of say about the character. So I w- there are there are stories out there that I could see for him. He's a character I love writing, but it's like to tell another huge story about him, I would need to like it's one of those things. Like there was the story that I was sort of building in the back of my head from when I was a teenager until I finally got to start writing it. I don't have a second one of those in the back of my head, but it is a character who I love and would love to write again. Uh, And there are certainly other characters that I would love to play him off of that I didn't get a chance to. And you can take that answer for what what it is. (laughs) But that I I would be definitely very much on board uh, for. But there are definitely plans for Tim Drake in the DC Universe. I am not going to be the next writer of Tim Drake in the DC Universe. But I am very excited to read my favorite character as a fan again.
4: Oh, that's awesome! awesome. Such a a tease, though. (laughs) uh, (laughs) James, I love you Uh, and
3: hate you in the same breath. No, (laughs) exactly.
4: (laughs) And I wanted to ask uh, the the your last issue of Detective Comics was bittersweet. It was was such a great final issue and capstone, but it was sad that like the run was coming to an end. But also, I love like. Uh, movies or, or books of, of road books. Like, I, I've read Jack Kerouac, I don't know how many times, and whether they're silly, like Dumb and Dumber, or something serious, I love a good road movie or story. And you set up these two great road stories with Tim and uh, Stephanie heading out. And then also, I, I wanted to talk about uh, Clayface and Dr. October. Like, they are such an interesting pair to me. You have this cha- transgender person who didn't feel like what they were on the inside matched what they were on the outside. So they went through the process of changing their body. But then you have Clayface, who can change his body at will into anything he wants, but yet is still at war with him in the inside. And it's such a, it's such a great idea for our fertile ground for stories. I was wondering as, did you have anything planned for those two characters in the future?
0: I definitely set that up for a reason. I, oh, I can say awesome. that much. Like,
4: yeah.
0: yeah. No, there, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll, like, I'll just come out and say it. That is, like, that is the start of something, like, that is a thread that I definitely want to pick up, that DC is aware that I want to pick up. It is Tremendous. not, it, mm. that thread may also intersect with another thread I've left in the book, you know, but not, I don't know, I'm trying to say things, like, in a very, like, starting <laughs> way. But it's just, like, I don't know, like, yeah. I think if you look at where I kind of leave all of the, the characters, like, I think you sort of see, like, for each character, there is a kind of like culmination of their arc, and the kind of, and then the opening to a new chapter. There, the one thread that I didn't resolve, the core, the most, the biggest core thread of the series that I did not resolve, is the thread that I played most directly with in the League of Shadows storyline with Cass. There is still a bigger story to be told out of the pages of that story and that whole mythology, which is my Denny O'Neill Kung Fu history of the DC universe (laughs) is one of my favorite parts of the DC universe from the league of assassins to, you know, even his work on the question and all of that, but particularly through the character of lady Shiva, that's a thread that I did not get to tie up and I hope to tie up someday. So
3: yeah uh something that i as we were talking about uh you know our our feelings of the uh whole series on batman on film when uh we were all over there doing some stuff is i had this vision as i was kind of like doing the radio drama and i was in it for so long is the idea of windows that are represented in the belfry and i thought am i reading too much into this in All the different points of view that there is a Batman and a Robin in some shape or form looking out the windows of the either this is going to be our base of operations and what that future holds and then Tim, Drake and Batman are looking out the very same window. Now it's completed with Drake, Batman coming back in, leaving Tim looking out the very same windows at the end of A Lonely Place of Living, now the windows are all broken and shattered again. Is Was that a metaphor for kind of what I just <laughs> spilled out here? Um, I, I, if not, it was just beautifully done that there's these, these different windows. Even when Tim is going to fight uh, the drones, that he's looking out the windows of the Belfry, knowing that this is where the attack's going to happen. He's got to hunker down. I thought that was just... Uh, the artwork was beautiful, but there seems to be this over overlining metaphor that's in there with the windows as well can you explain uh any bit on that
0: yeah no i mean the the things with kind of motifs like that is they almost start off a lot of times and i know there are the writers that they like you know they they say they knew it from the start and i don't always believe them but it's uh it's something that you start realizing that you're going to a kind of moment and creating a kind of touchstone with that is like rich with meaning. And the looking out through the glo- Batman in the window is such a rich, it's the back through the window. Like okay. that is the, that is a core piece of the mythology. And the thing that the Batcave has never really had, that the Belfry did have is a way of looking out on all of Gotham as it is in this moment. But it's also because it's through the lens. It's like the lens of the window is Batman. It's also what the city can be. And so it is sort of It every time that we kind of touch on that moment, it's the characters are looking through and whether it's like the more hopeful version of what the city can be or then the fear of what it could be or what, you know, like dream lost and found and all of that, like all of that was kind of the, yes, I was like, it was intentional touching back on that moment. But part of it is like, like that. It all comes from that original Eddie Barrows design of the Belfry and the power of those, those like the huge panes of windows, like right in front of you from the start. That that's really where it all began. I don't know. Like that, and that's, that's really the, you know, what I want to keep touching back on to is it's just like it. And there, it's clearly rich with uh, a lot of meaning. Yeah, I'm sort of talking in a circle, but yes, the <laughs> answer is yes. Well, it's
1: it's actually not about uh, the run or anything specifically. Um, a few weeks ago, a couple maybe a few days ago on Twitter, you posted some sort of uh, a picture of a of like a two story bookshelf. I was just w- wondering like how it was coming along because it looked magnificent, and I was just I was just curious <laughs> how how it was and uh because I, I, I even sent a picture of it to my buddy i'm like one day you will build this for me in my house you know because he's a contractor so like i'm stealing your idea <laughs>
0: I, oh yeah no i am i'm incredibly proud of it it's something that i uh you know my my partner uh sam and i just moved out to uh new york city from los angeles and uh in my, Los an- like, you know, big shocker in Los Angeles,
2: you
1: get bigger apartment.
0: rooms and more space for stuff. Like, I was living in a house out there, and now I'm back in an apartment. But thankfully, my apartment has ginormous ceilings. Um, and there is this one space that we decided to build a, a, a loft that, um, that sort of gives us a sitting area up top. And then under the loft, we had them build a full, like, wall-to-wall bookshelf. That now, for the first time, like all our entire comic collection is out on display. Amazing. Um, wow. When it used to be kind of broken up into pieces, and you know, I'm all I'm gonna run out of space on these shelves so like so quickly, it's gonna you know break my heart. But <laughs> I don't know. I I I know there's like the whole plenty of people to ascribe to the like philosophy of just like needing to kind of you know, clear out the clutter, particularly when you do a big move. But there are some books on the on those shelves like, you know, back when the last issue of Detective Comics came out, I posted a picture of my copy of Kingdom Come that I bought in middle school, that which was really my yeah. first DC comic. And like that thing is battered to hell. It is like it is it has gone through the wars and uh, is like the covers falling apart and all of it. But it's just, like, the fact that that's on the same shelf as a couple of stories that I wrote. Like, that matters to me. You know, I like, I build my whole library as a kind of, like, it is, it's a reference library. I go to it all the time. Like, now that I'm on, uh, I'm working on Justice League Dark, I'm, like, Revisiting every every story on that shelf that every DC comic that has anything to do with the magical side of the DC universe. I'm rereading all of Hellblazer, all of Shadow Pack. I'm rereading like you know parts of uh, like JSA, parts of like anything that kind of touches into even even story pieces that I'm not like specifically touching at this point. I want like I like kind of having that image of the world of the dc universe as it as it exists in my head and i like trying to get it out there and i also just like i also just like reading comic books there's also just that part of it
4: i love how you you like to read it on paper and not just pull it up digitally on the computer i like the paper so much better than the digital myself i agree oh yeah
0: yeah. ditto no I, i mean the I like. I could also show you like my uh, Comicsology page, which has like almost over nine hundred comics. In it, like, but yeah. you know, that's for traveling, right? Um, and then there are also a few things where sometimes I'm like, I need to like read an old issue of Showcase for reference, and like cross my fingers that it's up on Comicsology. <laughs> but. Yeah, I'm trying, right now I'm trying to hunt down the showcase 82, 83, and 84, which are, which is the first, uh, Nightmaster story with Jim Rook.
3: Oh, wow. Nice.
0: Like, so, but I love, I love that is there's a kind of archaeology when you're reading, when you're doing, when you're writing, like, comic characters, and you're, particularly when you're doing it in the main continuity, even though the continuity shifted and all of that, it's, there's always something valuable going back to the stories that introduced the characters. Like, I, I've also been rereading the George Perez uh, Wonder Woman, which introduced a lot of the mythology that, like, is still still there today. And it's one of those things where I'd read bits and pieces of it in the past. But I didn't, like, I honestly, like, I wasn't expecting it to feel so contemporary. Like, I thought it would feel more dated. Because it's like, you go back and you read early Uncanny X-Men, like, Claremont and Byrne, and it's just like, they're they're incredible stories, but they're dated. Like, that story couldn't come out today. There, there are some of the those Perez issues that feel like they have a more mo- contemporary comic pacing that like still has all of the priorities and I think a huge part of that is it comes from just like you know it's that singular vision the fact that he was both writing and drawing it and it's it's just so damn good so I don't know i I love that part of it like I love I love DC universe I love comic books so yeah
4: so that is that's so awesome. I I have a real quick question. The uh, first victim, uh, the victim syndicate, will we ever find out who that is or is that designed to be kind of a mystery where it could have been anyone or anybody?
0: It, it, it was definitely designed to be a mystery where it could be anybody. It's something that there is value in the story that would reveal their identity, but that's not, that's almost the final, like that's the final uh, first victim story. Like you can't, this character can't really continue once you know who, who they are. Right. Because that allows, once you know the original sin against the first victim, then Batman can atone for it. When the, when the first victim represents Batman's sins against everyone who has been caught in the crossfire between, in his war on crime,
2: mm-hmm.
0: like Batman can never atone for that. And that's the pain. That's the pain in the conflict. Like, that's also why the first victim has, like, you know, it's at the end of that first storyline, the first victim syndicate storyline, we say that, like, all, like, distinguishing features have been burned off. Like, and it's not clear if that's from the original, like, tragedy of what happened, or is that something they did to themselves? Mm. Because that's the, that's part of the horror of the character. Is this someone who had a very minor cross? Like crossing with Batman, and then just went like mad with rage, and then hurt themselves to make it so Batman could never know who they are. Or is this someone who was hurt like so massively that they lost their identity and are only a victim? like all of those questions? I want I wanted to kind of leave to to be asked, but there is definitely value in a story that reveals their identity. It's just not a story that. I was jumping I was jumping to tell uh, because it wasn't that wasn't the, the purpose of the story I was writing.
4: I think it works just so much better. I like it like the mystery like that. I, I didn't I kind of you know, you always kind of want to, you know, peek at your your Christmas present and know a little, a little <laughs> bit, but, but it does work so much better. Uh, I know we're, we're hitting around the hour mark yeah. here and we don't want to keep you too long, but I just I'll say my final piece. And that is I just wanted to say thank you for just a, a fantastic, fantastic run on Detective Comics for bringing Tim Drake back to uh, what he was before the new 52, both in like the appearance of the costume and the yeah. core origin yeah. of the story. And it, it wasn't so much that I'm an old fuddy duddy and I just like things back the way <laughs> when I was a kid, it, like his origin The fact that he figured out who Batman was rode his little bicycle out to the circus to find Dick Grayson, you know, did all that. Like that was so much the core and the essence of who he was uh, that when that was taken away, we we really were like, just kind of lost, like just dropped in the ocean of like, well, who is this guy? And now in this red Robin costume. uh, So I just wanted to say, thank you so much. And just say, I've read the first two issues of immortal men. And those are just fantastic. I can't wait to read more. And I can't wait to start reading justice league dark and just seeing uh, Swan thing and detective chimp interacting with Wonder Woman and Zatanna and Zatana. and it's just I, I just can't wait it's going to be so awesome so just, just thank you so much
0: thank you seriously I really appreciate it and uh, I love these characters in this world and you know the fact that the fact that you guys get what I'm going for that yeah. you know I'm tapping into like because what I'm doing on some level is selfish I'm like taking all my toys and playing with them how I want to play with them And the fact that other people respond to it and like, you know, it means that I'm doing something right. And, uh, you know, with, uh, with everything I'm doing in the next year, like in the justice league group, like, and what we're doing in general with the DCU at large, I really, really hope everyone, uh, like, I hope you all really enjoy it because we are having an absolute blast.
3: That's cool that you said toys. I spent yesterday driving all over creation, trying to get Mattel's, Clayface wave so I can build my own personal massive Clayface. I'm looking at Batwoman and Martian Manhunter (laughs) and uh, Superman going, I just need Jessica Cruz and Two-Face. What does that mean for you that you are writing this? And then some knucklehead in Ohio made a radio drama. But more importantly, there's a toy company (laughs) making action figures of your toys. And I'm I'm constantly going – Where's the Red Robin, you know, statue from this? Where's the Eddie Burroughs action figure? I don't know if you could kind of talk on that. Was that just something Mattel just did, or did you kind of have to say, oh, yeah, do this, that, or the other?
0: I definitely didn't have, like, input, but I was thrilled when I saw it, like, and I did the exact same thing you did. (laughs) Uh, Like, I go to a lot of conventions, so it was, like, it was my... My project at the last, like, all of the conventions for the last few months, like, I would go and I would come back with, like, you know, the first two I got were Batwoman and Jessica Cruz, and then I got my hands on the Two-Face and the Martian Manhunter, and then just uh, a week and a half ago, I was at, uh, where was I? I was in Phoenix, at Phoenix Fan Fest, and uh, I picked up the Superman piece, and I finally, like, snapped that final arm in place. And uh, I have <laughs> I have the... Because I have the Clayface animated series figure, I have yep. the Lego Clayface, and now I have, like, the Clayface that is the Eddie Barrows Clayface from my run, and it's like, they're all hanging out together.
1: Clayface um, party. <laughs> oh,
0: so, yeah. No, and it, but seriously, I would love to get the double R like, Red Robin, uh, costume figure. Like, that would be... Like, frankly, I would even, like, settle for a, like, more contemporary version of the classic 90s Robin costume, because there isn't, like, a great figure. There's the one Teen Titans figure that they made of that, like, yeah. from the DC Direct line. i got that one. Uh, which, I, I'm still looking for that one. I need oh. to, I need to pick that one up. I held off for so long on letting my buy too many toys and then the batman animated series like line that started coming out just broke me as a human <laughs> being and now i'm just like gathering everyone up and now that i've started uh, like i also just love the kind of like K- comic-con archaeology of like going out and going to all of the different toy booths and be like all right what do you what do you got what do you got you got the you got the good stuff over here and uh i already have a few zatanna figures i'm like building so now i'm now i'm also building up my uh Justice League Dark run, but uh, yeah, you know great. I don't think there's a detective chimp out there, so I need to hunt. <laughs> I need to figure out. I, I need to figure out whose arm I've got to twist internally to <laughs> to get a detective chimp figure uh, and give him a sword. That's that's my goal. There you go.
2: Yeah,
1: yeah. J- James, I was just curious. Did you have you seen Batman Ninja yet? And if you have, what did you think of the way the Robins were portrayed?
0: I saw batman ninja and it is the craziest thing i have ever seen and for the first half i thought i hated it and then <laughs> like an entire and then all of a sudden a giant robot made out of monkeys started fighting giant robots <laughs> yes. made out of like <laughs> yeah ditties. and it was just like no this is the best thing ever um it's a completely lunatic story but it's like i love like i mean it's like it's a kind of remix of all batman elements like with a kind of you know just that excessive anime like quality of just like anime action stories and i have to, i know that the stories are different uh, are a little different if you watch the subtitle version i've only watched the mm-hmm the version with English voices. So at some point I'll go back and give it a second go, but it's just like, it is a wild story. Like, I mean, the, the Robins are definitely not like, like that version of Damien is not like there's the fact that he loves animals. That has always been a part of Damien, but otherwise he's more just like a nice teenage boy. And that's not Damien. (laughs) Like it all works in the context of what it is and what it is, is just like a, crazy crazy story that i I was like sitting down on like sam put it on and i was like working on my computer and was like wait what did they just say what did they just do and then like a little bit in, i was just like i closed my computer it's like i can't focus on anything but this because this i think i'm going insane um (laughs) and then that giant like red hood like the painted <laughs> sequence with red hood. And like, yeah. that was the moment where it was just like, I was intense I just need to, to get like, let go of <laughs> like anything. And then finding out that it was like Buster Bluth doing the voice of the Joker in it. And I'm like, I don't understand anything about the universe, but I'm happy that it made this.
3: Yeah. <laughs> well, James, we want to say a big thank you for coming on the show and a big, uh thank you for the work that you're doing and continue to doing. This is where we would uh do our plugs. So, I don't think you have anything left going on, right James? You're not busy doing anything else. Uh, of course you're doing <laughs> Justice League Dark. I know you can only say a very little bit, but is there anything you just kind of want to let uh, the fans know that uh, Justice League Dark is going to be doing or what the, you know, thesis would be for Justice League Dark?
0: The original owners of Magic are coming back and they're angry. So, stay tuned. This is a love letter to the entire magical uh, DC universe. It's all of the characters that I've loved next to Gotham. Like the magical corner of the DCU is the corner. I really, I'm really, really passionate about. And uh, there really isn't any corner of the magical DC universe that they're, they're not letting me touch. So, you know, there's, it's a big story. What we're telling Like, you know, I know people have questions. Why is wonder woman at the heart of it? why is like where like where's john constantine and it's like he's on page six of issue one don't worry (laughs) but this is this is me trying to tell an epic spanning the entire uh, magical dc universe in the same way that i did a story spanning the whole batman universe in detective so i i really really hope people enjoy reading it as much as i enjoy writing it and the work on it by Alvaro Martinez, Raul Fernandez, and Brad Anderson is some of the best, uh, like, like every day when I get in pages, I, like, immediately start messaging, like, my friends, like, Josh Willingson and Steve Orlando and Scott. Like, just, like, I start sending them to them, and it's just, like, they're always like, damn you! I'm, like, I'm never letting go of Alvaro. You can't have him. He's too perfect. Um, but, yeah, so... Just wait and see. If you've ever liked the magical DC universe, you're going to love this. This is a big horror story. Yeah. And if you haven't, this will hopefully be the story that makes you love it, love it as much as I do.
3: Awesome. Very cool. Right. Oh, James, again, thank you very much. All right. That's the conclusion of uh, episode 75. I can't believe we're at 75 episodes now there were a couple times i think uh, peter you had said this too of like i had notes written and i would just kind of get lost in listening to him say and he was just like dropping so much knowledge yeah. but like on top of that there was reverence for these characters you could you can tell it's just it wasn't an assignment that's like oh, i'm writing these characters it's he wasn't phoning it in you could still tell like there were still stories he wanted to tell so i just kind of want to get your guys' thoughts just on james uh Talking with us and just kind of what you thought about it, just him as a, a writer and a person. Let's start with uh, Peter.
1: It's just great because it seems like it was just easy. It was just fluid conversation. You know, and you could just tell, like, this was all passion piece for him. Like he he loves you know, spoiler, Tim Dre, Cassandra, I mean, even just through the interview you found out how much he loves Clayface. Mm -hmm. So it was just a real pleasure just like he gets it. Like this is like you said, it's not something that was thrown at him and he had to do it. This is something he wanted to do. And you could just tell by how he crafted the story and how much like love and you could just see it in the pages. And you know, it's I just appreciate how well he took care of our characters coming out of what was the new fifty two and now into rebirth. And just reestablish everything, and I just thought it was great. He was a great guy, and it was just like talking to your buddy at the bar. You know, yeah. it was just fun.
3: I think that was the the biggest takeaway. I had it, it wasn't like where well, we were talk, talking to chalking talking to Chuck Dixon. I I didn't have that that same feeling. I felt like i felt like i was talking to me like my grandfather not that we didn't need to give james respect but i felt like this is a guy we were sitting at a bar we were having a beer with and could just sit back and you know laugh and uh, talk with so I like, yeah that, that's really cool uh what do you got terrence
4: yeah, my big takeaways were when he mentioned uh doomsday clock with Tim Drake and yeah. to think, Oh my gosh, what is coming? And when he talked about the meeting that he had with uh Jeff Johns and I'm like, Oh to have been a fly on the wall and hear that <laughs> conversation. Like, please tell me somebody had a tape recorder going for that one because right. oh man, that that was uh so cool. And what I couldn't believe is that he had said that his first You know, job writing comics was the backup story for Batman number eight, which was a core of the Owls. Like, who does that? Like, unless you know you're uh, like a a famous writer of novels or something, um, that your first story is boom in the biggest book in the in the world at that time. I mean, Batman number eight, the New 52 was off the charts. Marvel was and and Image were not you know doing so well at that time. That was the biggest book. In the world, and he's writing for that as his first book, like, that's just crazy. I thought he was going to say he wrote some independent comics or wrote some stuff in yeah. Vertigo mm-hmm. right. before, and that w- that blew me away. And, I mean, he definitely rose to the challenge because that stuff – it was like the fall of the House of Wayne with the backstory and everything yeah. was so good. Um, so, I mean, it's, it, it's just – I just feel like there's this core of DC talent right now, with between Jeff Johns and Scott Snyder and and him, that have just kind of taken over and really get the characters, get what's going on, know how to craft great stories. And it's not about like, hey, how many gimmicky covers can we sell this month, and you know how many um, titles can we fit Batman in so that we can you know raise sales. It's really about. Telling great stories with all the whole DC universe. And, oh, man, I, I can't wait for Justice League Dark. I think that's going to be a lot of fun. You
3: know, that was the one I think he was talking to me our, our, as he was saying, if this is your first time in with the magical side of things, that's kind of where I was. I'm like, oh, I like the magical characters. But it wasn't something that I was going to go, yeah, I'm definitely going to read this book. It was something I never really read. And because of his writing in this and then reading his Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and reading the woods and – Different things that he's written, like after the fact, like I'm I'm all on board, so I'm I'm the perfect clean slate of like I've never really read much Swamp Thing or Constantine, you know. I know who Detective Chimp is, you know, you know that that, that that's about it. So I, I'm that perfect canvas of like sh- show me what this is all about. So if he has that much reverence and I know the ins and outs of Tim Drake. And he knows the ins and outs of Tim Drake, and this is the same guy that's going to know the ins and outs of Detective Chimp. I'm like, I'm a clean slate, dude. Whatever whatever you've uh, got to show me, show me. So that's really cool. And the other interesting thing, that his first introduction to Tim Drake wasn't you know, A Lonely Place of Living. It wasn't Batman Year 3. It was in the middle of a Young Justice run of Sins of the Father that is – or was it Sins of the Father? I'm uh, blanking on it. Sins of the Youth, where – it's it's in the middle of the uh, Jeff John's run and it's an alternate weird timeline where Tim Drake's the older one and Bruce Wayne's young or younger um, that he finds Tim Drake in that and then finds a love and affinity for the character and then goes backwards that's typical every comic is somebody's first comic that He found love for the character in the most craziest, zaniest story that you possibly could. I think that says a lot about uh, James as a writer and just how much he really loves this character.
4: And, you know, I love, too, that they they're heavily influenced by the animated universe. Yeah. You know, he talked about Kevin Conroy being the voice of his Batman. And if you've read Scott Snyder's Justice League, number one like that's got Hawkgirl back on the team and martian manhunter back on the team like mm-hmm. it, it i'm really glad that they're drawing from the best parts of that bruce tim universe as well oh totally totally um so let's do some plugs here really quick
3: on the way out uh let's go to our guest peter what uh what do you got cooking up where can people get a hold of you when you're not talking about batman or when you are talking about batman
1: uh, you could find me on Twitter at Pete Illustrated. You could find me on Instagram at Peter underscore Illustrated. You could check out my reviews of Detective Comics and various sorts of animated Batman films over at BatmanOnFilm.com. And feel free to just talk some talk fun. We we'll talk comics, sports, anything. I'm I'm down to just hang out and just mess around on Twitter.
3: Cool, uh, Terence. What do you got going on?
4: Yeah, well, I've had like the craziest like six to eight weeks of just. <laughs> family and work and just craziness going on so i've kind of been like a gerbil hiding under the ground or something i don't know did, ger- did gerbils go under the ground <laughs> gophers go under gophers. the ground right i, yeah. I learned that in town hogs yeah groundhog- there you groundhog. go I, I'm, I'm not quite sure what gerbils do but um uh, <laughs> the, the uh, um summer break starts for me on wednesday nice. i get i have two teacher work days monday and tuesday so i'm planning to get a lot more stuff up on our youtube channel Get the uh, Batman and Robin Eternal Volume 2 podcast. Uh, some stuff going because we've recorded some stuff. We did that with Sherlock We, yep. we about uh, Batman Ninja and stuff. we got to get up there. So in the next week or two, look for the YouTube channel and, and our Facebook page. And hopefully I'll be uh, having a lot more activity on there now that I've, I've got a little bit of free time. Because, you know, that family and job just gets in the way of my comic book activities. It drives <laughs> right. me crazy.
3: Yeah. <laughs> right. uh, and, of course, uh, I took a little... Quick brief hiatus. Uh, we were going to try and do something. We were going to try and do like a, a review episode or a discussion episode before the James interview. Like I said, uh, Ryan's off uh, doing some family activity because we're in summertime. So everything just kind of worked out that the James interview would be the next thing right after Lonely Place of Living. So we will be getting back into the '90s comic again, but maybe we might want to tip into the Young Justice, you know, A Sins of the Youth, and kind of see where where james uh, got his start from so like terrence said you can find us over on batman and robin eternal volume two podcast once that gets up and rolling and of course here and then all three of us have done different guest spots on batman on film uh you can find me at drummer
4: rob 10 at twitter and of course at eltd podcast for here but i just want to say hey ryan we missed your buddy ryan couldn't be here like you said because he was doing some family stuff but uh you know, James had s- said he was available at this time and date, and Ryan was nice enough to just yeah. be like, "Hey, man, go ahead without us, and and go ahead and you know that he knew the interview and getting that done was more important. Uh, so we just want to say, Ryan, we missed you. We wish you could have done it, but you know we appreciate you just you know, l- you know letting us go ahead and do it without you and and step aside. And I hope you had a great time at your uh, earnest celebration, which I didn't even know that was a thing. So no, I had no idea last week.
3: Yeah, <laughs> and I-, I can't wait to get him just back on the show just to talk about Ernest and be like I, I need some information about this uh, you can check him out at SMB underscore uh, Ryan and he's been posting some uh, pictures of like the the cabin uh, for Ernest Goes to Camp and they were they showed the movie outside like all these different things from Ernest I'm like there's a whole universe of <laughs> Ernest <laughs> goes to wherever.
1: I thought it was a joke when I first heard it. I, I, I thought serious. it was
3: a joke too and I was like man this is a real thing <laughs> yeah so that'll be kind of interesting to hear his uh, experience from that so on the behalf of our guest uh, James Tyne IV Peter, Ryan who's not here, Terrence and myself you've been listening to the Batman Universe and more importantly you've been listening to Robin Everyone Loves the Drake we will see you guys on the next episode take care bye
2: I am not a stranger to the dark hide away they say his words wanna cut me down I'm gonna a gonna drown I am brave I am brute I am who I'm meant to be this is me So cause here I come
3: and Thanks for listening to Robin everyone loves the Drake podcast this has been brought to you by the Batman universe.net. Tim Drake, Robin, and all Batman-related characters are under copyright of DC Comics. This podcast is solely for entertainment purposes, so no infringement is intended by this show. The show is not a good revenue stream. Actually, there's not a stream at all. All music and sound clips are under copyright by their respected copyright holders. So there should be no need to send the Penguin's lawyers after us for ill-gotten gains, because there are none. You can get a hold of the show a few different ways... We are on Twitter at ELTD Podcast. You can also email in at robineltdpodcast at yahoo.com. Our Facebook page can be found at www.facebook.com slash everyone loves the Drake. And as always, you can message directly over at the BatmanUniverse.net. So email, tweet, or message us. We'd love to hear from you. And we'll read your comments or responses on the show. The show you're listening to can be found a few different ways through iTunes and Windows Media. Also, over at our host, TVU, Leave us a review on iTunes if you listen there. It'll help spread the word of the show. Make sure you head over to thebatmanuniverse.net, your home for all things Batman and Robin. Thanks for listening to the show and hearing why everyone loves the Drake. We'll see you in a few weeks. Take care.